0: The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The Pharisee stands off by himself and Standing there, he prays a prayer of thanksgiving. He even uses the words that we uh, use to describe our communion, Eucharisto. I thank you. I thank you, God. And what does the Pharisee thank God for? He thanks him for what the Pharisee is not. I thank you that I am not like other people, he prays. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, even this tax collector standing here. I like the Pharisee. I don't mind saying it. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time as a parent teaching my children, trying to model for my children the importance of living a life of integrity. I was not always successful in that effort, but... I held up the ideal of a life that frowns upon behavior that harms other people. And part of that teaching was a reminder that they shouldn't hang out with or befriend people who steal or rabble rouse, or who break promises. If if the Pharisee is exhibit A of the kind of person I want my children to, befriending, then the tax collector is exactly the kind of person that I want them to run from as quickly as possible. The truth is that the tax collector is a rogue and a thief and an adulterer all rolled up into one very distasteful person. He steals from his own people by assessing more than the Roman tax and pocketing the difference for himself. He lives, as most tax collectors did in those days, a lavish lifestyle. It was notorious for conspicuous consumption. He bullied the people around him into submission. He dared anyone to report his behavior. And to top it off, he does all of this in collusion with the occupiers themselves, with the Roman Empire. He is unfaithful to his own people. He's a traitor. Doesn't get more distasteful than that. So I like the Pharisee as a role model for my children. But as he continues in his thanksgiving prayer, I like him even more as a role model for for the church. I fast twice a week, he prays. I give a tenth of all my income. Now I'm in love with the Pharisee. (laughs) He emerges as a paragon of giving, a, a model of generosity. He comes up first, when it's time to place his estimate of giving card in the basket, he takes his communion bread and wine, he closes his eyes with satisfaction and says, Eucharisto, thank you, I thank you, that I am not like all of those people out there sitting in the pews still. Religion News Service reported the latest statistics on Christian churches, on giving in the Christian churches in the United States. The average percentage of income Americans gave to their local churches in 2018 was 1.8%. That's down from 2.4% previously, which may not sound like a lot, but it translates to an $87.2 million loss in one year. The likely reason is a decline in attendance that's been happening rapidly among all denominations, mainline, evangelical, charismatic, even Catholic. In the last decade, churches have seen this phenomenon, and the Lake Institute puts the percentage of giving in the average mainline church like ours as less than 1%. The last time giving was this low in America was during the Great Depression. And into this picture walks the Pharisee, who shows enormous religious devotion by fasting twice a week and giving a tenth of his income. He he shows devotion and commitment to the temple. I'm with the pastor who says, if you know where to find a dozen or two such upstanding citizens, I know several churches that will accept delivery of them, no questions asked, Jesus' parables notwithstanding. If we were to place photos of examples of giving, examples of generosity on our stewardship posters, surely the Pharisee would grace them, standing far off, smiling, encouraging us to be like him. For a good Jew listening to Jesus' parable, the Pharisee would not come off as hypocritical or arrogant. It's important that we know that. As Amy Jill Levine writes, the Pharisee's prayer on its own terms shows no more arrogance on his part than anyone who has ever prayed or thought, there but for the grace of God, go I. The Pharisee would be seen by Jesus' hearers as exactly the kind of person their religion called them to be. Several years ago, I was sitting in a stewardship committee meeting. It's one of those meetings uh, that we used to have here uh, at times at the very end of the annual campaign when we realized that the amount people are pledging and the amount that we need to fund the ministries and missions of this church are not coming together. And someone at the end of the stewardship committee meeting mentioned a story from the book of Acts when the early church is asking people, first beginning to ask people to to give and You recall this story, Ananias and Sapphira, they they don't bring the full amount that they had promised to bring, uh, and then they lie about it. First, Ananias lies about it to Peter, and Ananias drops dead at Peter's feet. And when his wife comes in, she repeats the lie, and Peter says, the same hands that carried your husband out will carry you out as well. And she drops dead at Peter's feet. And the person bringing the story up said he wondered if that couldn't be our stewardship theme for the year. That's the kind of gallows humor you sometimes hear in the stewardship committee meeting. It's a fleeting thought. And I only bring it up because I think that thought is motivated by the same thing that I think motivates the Pharisee and that is fear. Most people read this parable and they think the Pharisee is smug and self-righteous. But I've always found that if you peel back smugness and self-righteousness, you almost always find fear lurking below. He shows contempt, to be sure, of the tax collector, but I think his contempt masks a real Fear, And I won't say what it is the Pharisee fears. I won't try to guess. The text doesn't tell us. But I'll tell you what I'm afraid of when I find myself fantasizing about Ananias and Sapphira's story being our text for the month or when I get on my high horse about how much I give and why can't everyone give like I do or why can't everyone be as faithful as I am? Why can't everyone be as good a disciple as? As I am, I'll tell you what I'm thinking or what I'm fearing when I say things like that. I'm afraid that I'm on my own. Do you know that feeling? I'm afraid that I'm on my own, that we are, all of us, on our own. I begin to think that the church rises or falls on my faithfulness, my righteousness, I began to think, I imagine God like us keeping a scorecard in heaven. And that me and the entire community of faith depends on us being on the right side of that scorecard. And I'll tell you, that's a fearful thing to imagine. As many of you know, I had the honor of being asked to officiate at a destination wedding a couple of weeks ago in the south of France was a young woman who was a teenager in the church I served in Alabama over 20 years ago who called and asked if I would be willing to do that. So I want to take a moment here just to speak to the teenagers in the congregation today. (laughs) You know, as you think about your future, if it includes wedding vows and um, if you're not going to get married in the church, then uh, I want you to know that I'm available for... I'll go anywhere, Hawaii, the Swiss Alps, Bermuda. It's, it's the work of the Lord, and somebody has to do it. But while we were in the south of France, we realized uh, how close we were to Geneva, Switzerland. And I asked Kim if she would indulge my Presbyterian inner nerd. Um, as you know, many of you, that Geneva is the place in the mid-16th century where John Calvin made his home and instituted the reforms to the Roman Catholic Church, of which we are heirs to this very day, and which we celebrate today. We celebrate Reformation Sunday, as you know, close to the anniversary of Martin Luther's protest against the church, in which he nailed 95 theses to the chapel door at Wittenberg. And even though Luther is credited with starting the Reformation, it's Calvin who really put it on sure footing. He carried the project forward by publishing his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which became the blueprint of the Reformed Church right down to this very day. And what became clear to me walking around the quiet halls of the Reformation Museum in the heart of Geneva was that at the root of the protest that Calvin and Luther and John Knox in Scotland uh, led, at the root of it was a protest against a fearful religion. A protest against a fearful religion. You see it in all over these displays. The Catholic Church of that day trafficked in fear, and lots of it, graphic fear. Luther was consumed by the thought, day and night, that he was going to hell. And that there were not enough prayers he could pray. There was not enough money he could give. There weren't enough confessions he could go to to stave off his fate. Can you imagine? The church of his time was only too glad to leave people in fear because a fearful people are easily controlled. And one day, Luther, as he tells it, was studying his Bible, and as he describes it, the words of Paul suddenly became crystal clear to him from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, and not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Luther describes that moment as a conversion experience. Suddenly, it becomes clear what he has been trying to do. He's been trying to work his way to God, he's been trying to earn his way to God, when the truth is that God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, has claimed him quite apart from anything he has done. And John Calvin, after him, took that insight and proclaimed even further that our faith from start to finish is all about God. What God does, how God loves, how and who God calls. And he said the life of the follower of Christ is one not of earning one's way into the grace of God, but of responding to that grace. The humility and liberation that comes from the recognition that God is God and we are not. As our devotional book says, it's impossible to be in a place of fear and resentment if we are in a place of gratitude. Eucharisto, I thank you, God, for your grace, for your mercy. We can begin to think, you know, that this is a parable about whose subject the subject is, a Pharisee and a tax collector. But it's not. None of the parables of Jesus are. All of his parables are about God and the realm of God. Jesus' parables are not about us. They invite us to place our trust in God who comes to us again and again in grace, who pursues us in grace and welcomes us magnificently. Pharisees and tax collectors alike throws the doors of the realm open for all. A kingdom more diverse than we could ever have imagined on our own. That is the grace of God. I'm grateful that it's been many, many years now since I sat in a room toward the end of the year in this congregation and heard a joke about Ananias and Sapphira. Instead, what I hear are stories stories about what God is doing in individual lives in this place, stories about God's transforming grace. Stories about why people are choosing to respond to God through generous giving, not out of fear, but out of faith. There's no room for fear because ours is not a religion of fear. We have Calvin and Luther and Knox and many others to thank that our religion is not a religion of fear, but of faith. God has given us all we need all the grace necessary for a life of abundance and generosity, I pray that as each one of us considers our gifts to the church in a new year, we will be motivated by that, by God's amazing grace that summons from us our glad response. Our eyes are opened like Luther's when we see that we are, all of us, standing in the same place of need as the tax collector and the Pharisee, when we recognize that the world lives and breathes only by God's grace, only then can our minds be free of anxiety, our souls liberated from fearfulness. Only then can our hands release their frantic clutching of material goods only then can our hearts be free to serve this is true eucharisto true thanksgiving humility is the doorway to generosity that is the hope of the tax collector that is the hope of the pharisee that is the hope of you and me may it be so amen